You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, what is the best sermon that you've ever heard? You know, uh, one that just stuck with you, that the preacher was speaking with a real fire and a passion that just gripped you. You found yourself locked in, listening to every word, and you, you sensed even that God was working within you as you were listening to, to help you respond. There's some very famous sermons through history. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, or John Piper's Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, in fact, there's even a YouTube series devoted to the greatest sermons of all time. There's a guy called Tim Challies. He's a writer and a blogger, and he's kind of put together some of the best sermons by guys like Paul Washer and Matt Chandler and R.C. Sproul, and he's kind of... Uh, unpacks why these sermons were so significant. He's even got one by Joel Osteen and why it's so bad as a sermon. Uh, It's a a really fascinating uh, series that he's put together. So today, though, we are beginning to look at what I think is surely the greatest sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. It is perhaps the most famous of sermons. As as Christians, we're very familiar with some of the key phrases. Uh, It's got the Lord's Prayer in it. Um, It's got lines like, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, which has obviously been significant for us here as a church. But what's really struck me recently is just how many of the phrases in this sermon are familiar to, to everyone. Even if you've never been to church, you'll know some of these phrases. Things like, the meek shall inherit the earth, or turn the other cheek, or seek and you will find. I mean, that's even become the slogan for an employment company. So there's something about this sermon that is kind of gripped the imagination. And yet it also suggests that some of it we don't quite understand. In fact, as John Stott suggests, this is probably the best known part of the teachings of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. So today, as we think through this sermon, I want to help us think through how do we understand this sermon and then respond to it? What is, what is Jesus' message for us? 
You see, when you do preaching classes at Bible college or whatever, they really try to help you get to the, the heart of your sermon. They kind of give you the advice that you should be able to summarise your sermon in, in just a sentence, kind of your, your elevator pitch, basically, is in the time it gets from floor one to floor three, what is your sermon? What is it all about? And I want to suggest that Jesus' summary for his sermon is this. It's about living in the kingdom of God under the rule of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is about living in the kingdom of God under the rule of Jesus. The kingdom of God, of course, is one of the key motifs, the key narratives of the whole Bible. Uh, As humans, we were made to live under God's rule. Uh, We were made to live with him and for him to enjoy his power and his protection and his glory and his goodness. But if you look around us, you can tell that that's not quite happening that humanity has kind of rebelled against him and actually lives in resistance to God. Thankfully, God doesn't just leave this world to rack and ruin. He sends Jesus to re-establish his rule and reign in the world. And that's really the context for this sermon. Uh, When Jesus begins his ministry, he says that he's coming to to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 4.23, he he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. He's saying, I'm here. The king is here. The kingdom has come because I'm here. And then we see in Matthew 5 that he sees the crowds and he's on the mountain and he, he gathers them together to give them this sermon. And this sermon really is an explanation, an an articulation of what life looks like in the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. It is, if you you will, a kind of kingdom manifesto. You know, a manifesto is where someone states what they believe, how they feel about the world and how things should work within it. This is Jesus' kingdom manifesto, his description, as John Stott puts it, of what his followers should be and do. It describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. And the first sign of it is happiness, a kind of blessed life. That sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, happiness is something that we all want. Aristotle said happiness is the meaning and purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. And so Jesus is immediately grabbing our attention with this promise of a blessed, happy life. Except when we look at what he says, how he describes that life, we're kind of surprised and at the least underwhelmed. You notice in that Bible reading, it kept saying that word makari. It's Hebrew for blessed. And so in the start of this this passage in chapter 5, we see Jesus repeatedly saying this phrase, that you are blessed, you are either happy or blessed. It's not a light kind of happiness. It's not something that's just here for a moment and gone. It's a deeper kind of happiness that you can't shake. It can survive all kinds of circumstances. But look at how he describes it. How, how people find it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are those who mourn, like happy are the sad. How is that a recipe for happiness? How does that work? In fact, even the most positive terms we might resist. He says that the meek shall inherit the earth, but we don't respect people who are meek. 
for us, meek means submissive. It's someone who is, you can just walk all over. You know, someone who doesn't have the wherewithal to take control of their life. So we're surprised immediately by what Jesus is saying. And yet Jesus did say in John 18, he said that my kingdom was, is not of this world. My kingdom is something different. It's got a different texture, different vibe, different values. So we shouldn't be surprised that happiness within this kingdom looks different as well. You see, if we follow this recipe, we'll find happiness because this is the recipe for someone who follows God, who lives within the kingdom of God. This is their character. You see how it's bookended here in this passage. The poor in spirit have the kingdom of God. And then down in verse 12, those who are persecuted and reviled, their reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like to be part of God's family. I want to suggest that really as we go through these Beatitudes, I'm going to go through them gradually, we're really going to see the flow of the gospel, the narrative of your life with God. And the first thing is, and it's all centred around seeing who God is. The first thing that you can kind of see is when we look at God, we see ourselves and we see our sin. When we see God, we see our sin. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word translated poor here is the same word you'd use for beggar, but it's not a, a physical uh, bankruptcy. It's actually a spiritual bankruptcy. It's just the, the poor in spirit. It's someone who feels that they have nothing spiritually. It comes from seeing God's perfection. It's the person who sees how amazing God is and then sees themselves and feels their poverty, their contrast. Martin Lloyd-Jones says he describes it as a complete absence of pride, a, com a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It is to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy. Now, of course, something like that is profoundly countercultural. It's very uncomfortable. I mean, we're, we're told constantly that we're good people. In fact, even when someone does something bad, they say, oh, I'm not a bad person. And we're told that we, we need to build ourselves up in this. We need a good self-esteem. We need to believe that we're capable, that we're moral. But actually, Jesus is saying that the kind of view that we should have of ourselves is that we're sinful. We should have self-doubt and self-criticism. It's actually essential that happiness begins with this low view of ourselves rather than a high view. In his book, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis talks about his slow, gradual move from being an atheist to becoming a Christian. It took a long time, step by step, and crucial to it was a period in his life where he really tried to be a good person, where he tried to be as virtuous as possible. He wasn't yet a Christian. He wanted to see how well he could live. And he said it was a humbling experience. He writes, for the first time I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose and there what I found appalled me, a zoo of lust, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds, 
My name was Legion. When we look properly at ourselves, when we look properly at God, we see who we are. Romans 1 describes uh, those who have walked away from God, people like us, it says, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, maliciousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do any of those words resonate? Do you see yourself in that? Do we see our sin or are we still blind to it? If you do see your sin, then your response is to mourn and that's the right response. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The word mourn there is a Greek word that basically means it's the kind of word that you would use when you're talking about the loss of someone that you love someone that is dear to you. It's the kind of mourning that goes deep into someone's soul. It is, one writer says, it's like the kind of mourning that is visible. It's the person on the side of the road just in their, the head in their hands. It's a visible mourning, that kind of mourning. And we mourn for lots of reasons. First of all, we mourn because sin has destroyed us. We mourn with regret. It promises so much but delivers so little. Just the other day I was talking to a guy who was just, he could hardly look at me. He, he just felt, uh, he was writhing with regret as he spoke about some sin in his life. And the second thing is we mourn because of sin's impact on other people. This guy was mourning because he had hurt someone that he loved. So often the people that we love the most, we treat the worst. Sin breaks other people, not just ourselves. Have you ever had that experience of those times where the word sorry feels too small? You know, we use the word sorry all the time. You're on a train, you bump into someone pre-COVID and you say, oh, sorry, sorry about that. And then you, then you hurt someone that you really love and care for and the only word you have is sorry. I mean, I used it on this train with a stranger, but you're the person I love. This word is not enough. We mourn our sin because it hurts others. And we mourn because sin hurts God. In Genesis, we see sin spread across the world. And in Genesis 6, we're told that as God sees it, it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones explains that we have some understanding when we're convicted, we have some understanding of what sin means to God. This terrible thing that would stab, as it were, into the heart of God it grieves God and we mourn because of it. And you often see this kind of mourning in the Psalms. Psalm 31, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. That's someone who's mourning for sin. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever really felt that kind of mourning? If you have, then you long to see your sins forgiven. Jesus says, 
it describes it as a hunger. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We could define righteousness as uh, fulfilling the requirements of a relationship. The requirements for a relationship with God are, are perfect obedience to his will. Sin means that we fail to do that. We fall short of his glory. We go against God's will. So we don't belong in his presence. A righteous God cannot accept us. These are the requirements of a relationship with God and we fall short of them. What do we do? Well, those who hunger for that righteousness, Jesus provides. He satisfies. You see, Jesus fulfilled the requirements for that relationship. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. And then he took the legal cost of our sin upon himself and paid it. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness. We hunger for that righteousness. We long to be able to have a relationship with God and Jesus makes it possible. Charles Wesley wrote these words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Have you felt that? Have you felt your sin hungered for righteousness and felt him satisfied? I remember really truly understanding this for the first time. I had sought righteousness. I'd hungered for it. And I remember a pastor saying to me, Luke, what Jesus has done, you can't add to it, you can't take away from it. You can't add to it, you can't take away. And when that settled in my heart, the thought that I was safe, that I had his righteousness, often it leaves me. But when I come back and truly see that, I hunger for righteousness and he satisfies and I want you to notice that it's all his work. You see, often when we feel the poverty of our spirit, we want to find the riches within ourselves to deal with it. We want to fix the problem, but we can't. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, the Beatitudes drive us into ourselves and now we need to be driven out of ourselves. So, so we feel what, what's wrong with us and then God lifts our eyes so that we see him. So when we, we, see, uh, we see God, we see our sin, but then when we see our sin, we see God's grace. We see his kindness to us. And this changes us. You see, the gift of righteousness is a gift that keeps on giving. We have this kind of legal standing now with God. His righteousness has made a relationship with him possible, but now we hunger after that righteousness in our lives. We want to start following him want to live that out. That's really important to note because I think often there's this kind of false idea that's put around in churches. There's a kind of apathy about it. I remember talking to a friend who said, oh, look, my brother, uh, Jesus is his saviour, but he's not really living with Jesus as his Lord. 
as if there was kind of a, you could have a gap between those two things. You know, there's a point where you, you receive Jesus' forgiveness and then further down the track you start following him in, in your life. He's your Lord. That's not how it works. The two things go together. If he's your saviour, he'll be your Lord. If he's not your Lord, then he's not your saviour. See, this is actually what happens. Our lives are changed and transformed. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a, there's a purity of focus and life. Now, our, our works don't save us. We're saved by what Christ has done for us, but his saving changes us. And it makes sense, doesn't it? So if you really feel your sin and you feel your poverty, when you're given those riches from Christ, you're not going to take them for granted. You're going to be thankful. When you mourn your sin and the way it impacts yourself and other people and God, then you want to flee, flee from it. You want to find a new life. And so you pursue him. And see, what happens is the more you see God and his grace, the more you want to become like him. And that's kind of the third movement of the gospel. First, we see God and we see our sin. Then we see our sin. We see his grace. Then we see his grace. We see who he is. And the more and more we look at him, the more and more we start to look like him, our lives start to change. And you see that in the rest of the Beatitudes. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think you could define meekness as having a humble view of your place in the world, your place before God and before other people. It comes from the idea that you realise how gracious God is to you, so you don't you don't approach the world as one who, who has demands. You're not entitled. You have a sense of wonder. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, the man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. And this becomes the kind of person who is merciful. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. John Stott describes Mercy is compassion for those in need. Sinclair Ferguson describes mercy as, as it relieves the consequences of sin in the lives of others. Mercy is getting down on your hands and knees and doing what you can to restore dignity to someone whose life has been broken by sin. This is really at the heart of the Beatitudes. You, know, you see your sin, you've had this experience of it and of God's grace, and so you long to give that mercy and grace to others. Tim Keller writes, mercy is commanded, but it's not the response to a command. Mercy is an overflowing generosity as a response to the mercy of God which we received. Mercy is spontaneous, superabounding love which comes from an experience of the grace of God. This is a, a litmus test, really, of how we understand the gospel, how much we have experienced God's work in our hearts and his grace. I mean, what, what happens when you, when you hear about someone's sin? What's your response? You know, maybe a pastor falls into sin or you have a friend who stuffs up or uh, there's someone who, a spouse perhaps, that lets you down. What's your response when that happens? Do you lord yourself on your own virtue? Do you stand on, on a kind of a moral high ground, aloof from them? Do you gossip and tell other people about it, trying to destroy that person? Do you hold it against them, never letting it go, so that they're constantly feeling the consequences? Or are you merciful? 
Do you get down on your hands and knees and try to restore that person and lift them up and show them God's grace? John Stott again, nothing moves us to forgive like the wondering knowledge that we ourselves have been forgiven. Nothing proves more clearly that we have been forgiven than our own readiness to forgive. Are you merciful? Would people say that? Have they experienced that? Have you experienced God's mercy so much that you can't help but pass it on? A merciful person and a meek person will also be a peacemaker. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. That phrase, sons of God, is significant. We know that legally now we are adopted as his children because of what Jesus has done. But actually he's talking more here about a kind of a character change that has happened uh, in the ancient world. In countries like Israel, uh, a son would do whatever their father did. So if your father was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. And so Jesus is saying here, if you uh, become a child of God, you'll do the same kinds of things that God does. God is a God of peace. And so his children are people of peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. And so his people will spread that peace wherever they can. I think that's why it's so hard to see conflict among God's people. It grieves me when I'm in a conflict or when I see it around me and it's unresolved because it doesn't make sense. Just think about it. We have been in conflict, the greatest cosmic conflict that there is, a cosmic conflict with our Father in heaven, with God himself, and he has resolved that conflict. He has made peace. He didn't just kind of keep peace by shoveling it under the carpet. He didn't hold back and just judge us. No, he made peace by stepping into the conflicts, by sending Jesus. Jesus made peace by the blood of the cross, so we're told by Paul. So if we've experienced that, how can we not make sure that others experience that? If he has made peace with us and we've experienced that, Surely we must make peace. It doesn't make sense for churches to split over stupid things. It doesn't make sense for brothers and sisters in Christ to live in enmity with each other. That's not okay. If we've truly experienced peace, we will make peace with others. That's what living out the Beatitudes means. We see God and we live like him. We become like him. And yet, even though God's people, as they're following the Beatitudes and they're experiencing God in these profound ways, there's this strange response that people have. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is bizarre, right? If you're living out the Beatitudes, you'll be a really nice person. You'll be meek, you'll be humble, you'll make peace with people, you'll be merciful to people, and yet people will hate you. They'll persecute you, they'll revile you. How does that work? I mean, Jesus, we're told throughout the Bible to expect this. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It takes on various forms. You might be 
scorned or dismissed by your colleagues at work. You might be reviled, abused, belittled behind your back. You might be judged by your peers, perhaps even be prosecuted by the authorities. This is something that we must expect. That's what we're told here. But why does it happen? And even more than that, how can this be a blessing? Blessed are those who are persecuted. It's awesome if you're being reviled. How? How can that be so? I want to suggest three things. The first thing is it's a sign that you are living in the kingdom. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is his Christ's manifesto of life in the kingdom under his rule. And whenever we follow him, we start to inspire hatred because there is this fight against the kingdom. Uh, Mark Sayers is a Melbourne writer. You've probably heard me quote him before. He has this great line, people want the kingdom without the king. People want all of the good things that God's rule brings, want peace, happiness, joy together, prosperity, all of these things. But they don't want the king who brings that. And as God's people, if we are living under the rule of Christ, we remind them of the king that they're trying to avoid. Does that make sense? Uh, Jesus was persecuted because he reminded people that they had someone who was above them, that they owed their life to someone, that they, 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 there was someone that they should be serving. And when we live out the way of Christ, then we will remind people of that as well. There's a kind of a rumbling in their conscience when we live like that. As Don Carson puts it, genuine righteousness condemns people by implication. Um, take, for instance, say you're in a group of people and they're talking about how they got drunk on the weekend or something and they're, they're boasting about that and, and you sort of stand off because I, I didn't get drunk, I, I don't feel like I should. How do they respond? They, they may well belittle you, scorn you. Why is that? Well, I think it's actually because deep down they feel challenged and convicted by your life. Deep down, they're ashamed. They boast about their drunkenness, but they actually feel ashamed by it. They realise it's actually not very impressive that you can't be yourself until you've got a few in you. They wish that it wasn't like that. And you remind them of that. Or consider sex. Perhaps you... You have a, a, the way that you value sex is different to the way they do. There's actually something sacred and spectacular about God's vision for sex. And people actually sense this. They understand that it actually is best reserved for marriage, that there's this precious thing that God has created. But they'll kind of try to undercut that. It's too big. It's too grand and so they'll try to uh, diminish sex and diminish you for holding God's values. Now, of course, I'm not saying that we should be a judgy kind of people and uh, really crush people with how we live, but if we are truly living out God's vision, if we are living under his rule, we will look different and people will not like that. And, in fact, we need to look different. If we don't look different, there's a problem. Jesus said... Be careful if everyone's speaking good of you. That's not a good sign. If, you don't, if your life doesn't rub up against other people in a way that's uncomfortable, then something's wrong. Remember what Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus 
will be persecuted. So if we're not being persecuted, are we living a godly life? Are we different? Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, you'd know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's something qualitatively different about life under Jesus. We're not supposed to be like everyone else. There's supposed to be something different. We are not of this world. And so when we bring that kingdom into this world, it should be a change for people. But it is a comfort if you are being persecuted. It's a sign that you are living under the king. He was persecuted. And so if you're following him, you will be too. If you're truly living out the values of his rule, it will be noticed by other people. So that's the first kind of strange comfort. But the second comfort is that he promises to be alongside us when we are persecuted. Jesus promises this, that he will be right with us, holding us up and strengthening us, emboldening us, giving us the words to say. And so in these moments, God's people actually experience more of Christ. You'd think that he would feel more distant to them, but actually they have this incredible sense of his presence. So Paul can say in Romans 5, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Poured in. In the crisis, in the moment of decision and trouble, his love is poured in. So God comforts in our persecution. And thirdly, he promises rewards at the end of our suffering. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What these rewards mean, it's hard to know. What does it look like practically? One of their best guesses is that one of those rewards is seeing other people alongside us in heaven. So 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul describes the Thessalonians as our glory and our joy, that you are kind of the reward for us. And when we get to heaven, there'll be other people there who've been shaped by our ministry, by our lives. And Paul also says that we are the fragrance of Christ. When we carry the, the message and the, the character of the kingdom, people notice it. It's like, what's that? What's that? Oh, that's, that smells like Jesus. <laughs> now, for some people, Paul says, that's a terrible thing. They, don't, they will hate it. But for others, it's a beautiful thing. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. This is the blessing. When we live like Christ, when we show the values of the kingdom, some people respond angrily. They hate it. They revile us. They reject us. But others see it and they see something that they want. They see Christ. They see the king and they want more of him. And they begin the process that we have had. They see Christ, then they see their sin. They see their sin, then they see God's grace. 
And so our lives can have an impact on other people. And when we come face to face with God, they will be there with us. I love the Beatitudes. It's an extraordinary passage. Billy Graham said that he sat down once to write a book on the Sermon on the Mount, but he didn't get any further than the Beatitudes. He writes, the Beatitudes are revolutionary, deeply profound and yet amazingly simple. If applied on a universal scale, they could transform the world in which we live. And he's right. And at the heart of it, I think, is the idea that it all revolves around seeing God, really understanding who he is. This is a manifesto about the kingdom of God and it begins, your life with God in the kingdom begins with truly seeing him. That can be hard. The more we see him, the more we understand our own sin. The contrast feels so stark. But then as we see our sin, we see his grace. As we're driven into ourselves, then we're driven out of ourselves to the God who forgives us. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, he will satisfy. And then as you see his grace and as you look at him more and more, you start to look like him. What a glorious thing that we start to live and become like the king of this kingdom. And the promise is that we will see him one day and be just like him. 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The God who had seemed so far off, so far high above us, will be right in front of us welcoming us home. The kingdom that he brought to earth, we will experience with him, living face to face, just like him. John says, everyone who thus hopes in him, in him purifies himself as he is pure. That future vision, may that inspire us now to seek after him, to live under his rule, to live out his rule, to show the world his goodness. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this passage. It's an extraordinary passage. It's very uh, convicting but also exciting. Uh, Lord, help us to see you and then see our sin. Help us to be real about that. May we allow ourselves to feel our poverty to not just reassure ourselves, but to allow you to convict us and then to mourn and to feel it deeply. And then, Lord, as you do that, raise our eyes to see your grace. May we hunger for your righteousness and may you satisfy us. And then may we uh, not be satisfied because we just want to become more and more like you. And so the more we see you, may the more we become like you. And thank you that that will be satisfied one day too. We shall see you and be like you. Thank you that you would choose to do this to creatures who have walked away from you. You have not abandoned us. You have come to bring your kingdom, your rule and your good reign in us. May we declare that and live that out in the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.